I want to talk today just for a few minutes on a simple, simple topic, paving a highway for glory, paving a highway for glory. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, amen, amen. And Isaiah says this, and you might be familiar with this verse, he says, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Amen. Let's give God a hand clap of praise today, for then the glory shall be revealed. I want to talk to you all today. You may be seated. Thank you for standing for the Word of God. But I want to talk to you today about paving a highway for glory. Paving a highway for glory. I don't want this to be confusing. I want you to understand from the onset what we're talking about today and the message that I believe God has for us today. Paving a highway for glory. Now, I don't know if you think about highways a lot. I don't, but just for the sake of today, I was thinking about highways. And if you, well, example is that we go to Texas for the holidays because uh, Susan, my wife's family, lives down there. Uh, my family back, it, they live down there too. And so when we go for the holidays, we, we take a road, and it's usually a highway. Now, the problem with Texas is that it's massive. As you know, it only takes about four hours to get to Texas from here, approximately. But it takes about 10 hours to get anywhere in Texas once you're there. And you have to go through West Wonderful Texas. And um, Karen, wow. Yeah, it's all right. We love you. We love you still. But the one beautiful thing is that it's all, you know, it's, 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 it's flat and you can see the horizon. It, it is beautiful in its own unique, precious way. But if you're trying to get to a place, right? If you're trying to get to the place, if you've done geometry or math, you know that uh, to get from point A to point B, the shortest distance is a straight line. Not necessarily the quickest, because sure, you would like to get to, uh, say, Denver to San Antonio, and you know from point A to point B, that's the shortest distance, but if there's not a road, then you're you're going through hills, you're going through valleys, you're going through rivers, you're going through mountains, whatever. It's not going to be quick, it's not going to be easy, so you're going to take a path that the route has, has made. Now, I wish that someone would just pave a highway just for me from Denver to San Antonio or Austin, whatever, and so that I can get from point A to point B as quickly as possible. It doesn't exist. Now, if you want to do that, it'd be great, a lot of investment. But what I'm talking about is paving a highway, paving a highway to create for an easier journey from point A to point B. What we're talking about, though, is paving a highway for glory, paving a highway for glory. The cry of my heart and to our church is that the glory of God would be manifested in our church 
in January this week in 2020, I want to see the glory of God in Vertical Church. Amen? Why? So the question is why? Why in the world would you want the glory? Why would you worry about the glory of God? Aren't there a bunch of good churches and things going on? But let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. What do you think about the state of morality in America right now? What do you think that most churches are delivering and, and talking about Sunday after Sunday? I don't know, but I know as Vertical Church, as a church both on the north and south side, we want to align our principles and our practices to the Word of God so that we can see the glory of God. We know that sin is wrong. We know that disobedience to the Word is wrong. That we have to change our life. That God delivered us from sin. Not so that we can stay in sin, but delivered us from sin so that we can live a life for Him and to see His glory in our life. Everyone say, Amen. I want to see the glory. If you, like me, feel a gnawing hunger in your heart to see the Spirit of God in unprecedented measures, if you want to see God move like never before, and on the north side, I, that's my desire. I don't want what happened in 2019. I want more. I want the blessings of God more. I want to see God work more. I want to see God transform my life more. I want to see the glory of God. If you have that hunger and desire, then you can pray with me that God bring back the glory. God bring back your spirit and let it manifest itself among us. Praise God. You say, great, Tim. You kind of gave us a why, but what is glory? What is glory? What are you talking about? When we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about the manifested presence. His Spirit manifested in our presence that shows His magnificence, that shows His might, that shows His strength, that shows His, His everything that He is to us. That's glory. That's glory. But it is an abstract concept. It really is. When you think about it, God is a spirit. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. He doesn't have flesh and bones. Right? So, to, to understand glory, it, it's sort of abstract for us today. And the way to understand it, it's easier seen than really explained. We could talk about it. But if we want to see the glory, we have to see it. We have to see it. Now, for us in our day and age, we might not be so accustomed to glory as they were maybe in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, if we read, they saw the glory of God. When we read, um, for example, the glory of God was the fire that burnt like a furnace on Mount Sinai. They visibly saw the fire of God. It was the glory of God that appeared on the face of Moses where His face shone after being 40 days with the Almighty God. They saw the glory. 
the glory of God was seen in a pillar of cloud by night, or by day, and a pillar of fire by night. It guided them, it directed them, told them when to stop and when to rest. That was the glory of God. The glory of God was seen on the face of Jesus Christ when, when Peter and James and John witnessed the glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. You know these stories. You've heard these stories. The Apostle John said, We beheld the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God was present in the early church through mighty signs and wonders. The Apostle Paul prayed over the Ephesian church that they would experience the glory of God. But I want to just spend a few minutes to talk about two examples. One is the tabernacle, the glory of the tabernacle. The tabernacle in the wilderness was designed by God. We don't have all day to go through the details, but you can read in Scripture the intricacies, the plan that God had laid out for the tabernacle and what they should do. There was a lot of gold in that tent. Everyone say gold. I hate that in preaching you just talk to people, they just nod their head. I like feedback. So if you feel like saying yes or amen, even if you don't agree, it helps. But there was a lot of gold in that tent. Gold was everywhere with Israel when they left Egypt. You know they were in Egypt. They were slaves for most of the time, 430 years. That's a long time. America hasn't even been around that long. And they were enslaved and bondage for, over four, for nearly 430 years. But when they left Egypt, when God delivered them from Egypt, and we know that Egypt is is like sin, we're delivered from Egypt, we're delivered from sin. But when God delivered them, He had them. He basically had them spoil the Egyptians. They gave them gold and all kinds of precious metals. And, and then they used that gold for the tabernacle. They used that, that gold to build that tabernacle. There, there was gold and silver and precious materials and metals all invested in that tabernacle. There was about a ton of gold, literally a ton of gold. Now, if we were to use the price as a Friday of gold, which is $1,557 per ounce, there's 16 ounces in a pound and 32,000 ounces in a ton. Not that you really care, but if you want to help me with the math, it comes out to approximately $49.8 million in gold alone in that tent. And it traveled through the wilderness. There were 3.75 tons of silver that was worth more than $1.4 million. There was a lot of precious metals I mentioned, and there was wood, all kinds of various wood, acacia wood. It was all overlaid with gold. The lampstand, the table of showbread, the Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat overlaid and covered with gold. God was saying something about the place where He dwelt. I don't want this to be a mystery of where I'm going at here. But we know that God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He dwells in us. We are the temple of the Almighty God. 
There's a reason why it's all outlined in Scripture and there's details and details and details and it helps us fall asleep at night as we read all those details. But there's a reason why it's carved into Scripture and that we can look at. God was saying it is an expensive place. It is a costly place. It is an extravagant place. It is a place fit for the King of Kings. And if they, we think we can just come into God's presence casually and there's nothing given and there's nothing invested and there's nothing set forth and that God would somehow still reveal His glory in our life, we are disillusioned. God is saying something about the place where He dwells. The glory of the tabernacle in the wilderness was later eclipsed by the glory of the temple. 1 Kings chapter 8, the Bible tells us that David amassed great wealth. You know the story of King David. He wanted to build a place for God. He didn't want God to have His glory in a tabernacle. He wanted to build a temple. But because of the blood on David's hands, he was a warrior. God says you cannot do it. But here's a side lesson for all y'all here today is that David prepared the next generation. Parents, grandparents, we are preparing the next generation. It's on us. David amassed great wealth. David got the plans from God. He had it all laid out. He got everything prepared for the next generation. He got everything prepared for Solomon to build that temple. Seven and a half years. Solomon, during his reign, seven and a half years of labor and 183,000 plus men working on that project. A lot invested. Now I know all y'all scholars sitting there, you know all these things. I'm sorry for boring you, but stick with me. Seven and a half years, 183,000 men working on the project. The gold alone in that temple would be worth more than $150 billion. The silver alone would, we, would cost over $20 billion. To build the temple today would cost 150 to 200 billion dollars. That's a lot. That's a lot. We thought the tabernacle was a lot, but there's a lot in this temple. There's a lot in this temple. By comparison, if we were to look at the edifices and the buildings that we have today, they do not even compare to the glory of Solomon's temple. How many uh, Oakland, no, not Oakland, Las Vegas Raider fans do we have here? Uh, on the north side, we have one. Uh, yeah, Alex. Alex, praise God. Well, they're, they're, you're building, Alex, this is important. Pay attention for you. They're, you're building the most expensive stadium ever built. It's $1.9 billion in Las Vegas. You can see some pictures of it. So maybe that will help and encourage them to play better. Um, the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, $1.5 billion. One World Trade Center, $3.8 billion. The House of Towers, it's a 
it has another name, but this is in Saudi Arabia and Mecca. There's a bunch of towers. That's the most expensive building so far. It is 15, it would cost $15 billion to build. But the temple that Solomon built to God way back then cost more than 10 times more than anything that we have today. When God says, build me a place for my glory, there was no expense spared. No expense spared. There was no cost too great because it was worth everything if, the God, if God Almighty would show up in our situation, would show up in our desperation, would show up in our need. No cost was too great to have the glory of God come into their midst. The palaces and the stadiums stand in the shadow of the temple that Solomon built for the Lord. No other edifice in history, no other building in history compares to the magnificent place that the Lord would show His glory. That's why when we come into His presence Sunday after Sunday, we don't just casually go into His presence. That's why we enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Why? Because we serve a holy God and we want His presence to fill this place. We want His glory to fill this place. But we know that it costs something. And we know that if we're going to have His presence, that we need to exalt Him and praise Him because we're not worthy to experience the glory of God. The Lord was showing priority in the life of the children of Israel. He was saying nothing secular, nothing natural would supplant the value of the spiritual in their lives. He's saying nothing will even compare. Don't let... Don't even try because the investment and everything poured into this temple where I'm going to show my glory is going to surpass everything else in your life and make sure that's the number one priority. Seven and a half years, 183,000 laborers. Now imagine with me the most extravagant setting or place that you've been. I'll give you an example. And I know that you all are high class citizens here and this might not compare to all the wonderful places you've been. But when we were here in Colorado, the first in 2016, when we had just moved here, Susan and I and our family, and because I traveled a lot for work, they had a free couple free night certificates. So we, I tried to find the most expensive hotel. It was a couple night certificates to whatever hotel. And the Waldorf Astoria in Park City seemed nice. That's at least one of the top hotels with Hilton. It's not Ritz-Carlton or anything like that. Maybe one day I'll get to that level. But we stayed there in Park City. We had a great time. Of course, I, I wore my finest jeans from Target, and uh, I felt out of place, but they welcomed me anyway in our family, and um, they remembered our names and all that good stuff. Um, but the funny story is, is that we got into our room. It's the nicest room I've ever been in, full, full-on kitchen, nice stove, and the marble countertops, a big old living area with nice leather sofas, a big just window with a great view up there in the mountains in Salt Lake or Park City. And then we had rooms and all that. And, and so we spent a few minutes there. 
And then we decided, you know what, the kids want to go swimming. Let's go check out the swimming pool. And so we're headed down. We're just having a grand old time. Get outside of our hotel room, and we get out, and there's this guy coming right at us like he's about to attack us. And you can tell he fits in. He's got, you know, the polo shirt and his nice loafers. He fits in. He's high class. And he's older, and he, he, he comes in. He's yelling at us. He says, I am spending $500 a night to stay here and not listen to your kids. And he's just, and I, I'm, I did, we didn't get a call or anything. And I've, I've stayed in hotels, and I tell my kids, as soon as you get out of the elevator, this is a quiet place. You walk down the halls quietly. We, we, if we're on the second story, be careful. Now, we weren't paying attention. We were all excited. They may have been running around. Now, if someone told us, we said we would adjust the things. But this is, comes as a shock. We're not anticipating this at all. And he comes and attacks us. And, we, and Susan and I are in shock. We walk to the elevator, get in. I tell my kids, apologize. I said, just tell this man sorry. We get out of the elevator. I say, hey, you go to the front desk first. You talk to them, and then I'll go. And so I let him tell his side of the story. I, I don't really care. I want to figure out how to get through this. And then after he leaves and he's all burning, upset, and, and mad, I go up and I say, hey, I'm sorry. And they go, we, this is the first time we heard this. And he told us that he had called the front desk multiple times, and they said, we've never heard this. We really sincerely apologize. We're going to make it up for you. We're going to upgrade you to the best suite that we have. That was already wonderful, and we were just having a grand old time. And so, and so they gave us this room that was twice as big, and it was just... It was immaculate. It was wonderful. And um, I just told you that story to kind of keep, keep you engaged here. But it was, it, that, was the most, that was the most extravagant place that I've been. Now, you might have more other examples or, or stories that may um, just my story may shadow in, in comparison to that. But that's, a, that's what I think about extravagance. Uh, of something that's just magnificent, kind of beyond me. And the glory of the Lord, that's where it came down, into an extravagant place. Into a place where there was a lot of investment and work. And then the temple was dedicated. The temple was dedicated with even more sacrifice. In 1 Kings chapter 8, and in 2 Chronicles 5-7, through it describes the, dedica- the dedication of that temple to God by Solomon. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, it tells that the oxen and the sheep and all the, the sacrifices that were offered by the people, they couldn't even number it. That they brought to dedicate the temple to God. They already poured out a whole lot of investment in the temple, but they came with even more sacrifice. They came with even more to offer God. Later on, in a different part, after Solomon's prayer, it gives us some numbers on what happened during that part of the dedication. 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep were offered as a sacrifice to the Lord at the dedication of the temple. Now think about this. It was a seven-day process, and since we've been doing math today, we might as well continue. And so if you look at that number, and there would be 20,286 animal sacrifices a day. 
Now, they can't work all day, but let's give them a 12-hour work day. It sounds reasonable. They're not Americans. They don't ask for overtime. Um, so a 12-hour day, that would equate to 1,691 sacrifices each hour. That's why Solomon said, this altar does not have enough space. So if you read, he says, let's just hollow the whole middle court so that we have enough space to offer all these sacrifices. Solomon was saying, whatever sacrifice you have to make to get the glory of God. Whatever sacrifice you've got to make to get the glory of God, it is worth it for Him to come down and show His glory. We're talking today about paving a highway for the glory of God. Paving a way for the glory of God to come into our life. Finally, the Ark of the Covenant was placed into the most holy place. They took the staves out and they put the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubims and all that. Now, if you do a little study, you'll notice there's only one thing left in the Ark of the Covenant. It's the tables of stone. Gone is the manna that showed them God's provision that they stored in the Ark of the Covenant. Gone is Aaron's rod that budded that showed the miraculous work of God's power. All that's left is the tables of stone. But we know and we've learned this week in V Group. And God was making a point that if all you have is the Word of God, that will give you the provision you need and that will give you the miraculous that you need. You can rely and trust in the Word of God. All that was left was the tables of stone that Moses had carved out in the Ark of the Covenant. Then they had singing. Before the dedication, there was singing. There was Solomon's prayer. But they ushered in, like I said, the presence of God. They wanted to have the presence of God. They had Levites and they were dressed in white linen. And there was trumpeters. And there was a way that they had to enter into the presence of God. They couldn't just enter in any way. They had to robe themselves in a particular way. They had to live a righteous life. There was a lot of pressure on the Levites and the priests on how they lived their life if they were to operate in the presence of God to see the glory of God. And that worship experience, that worship experience, you know, I, I know some of us, you know, we'll say we have an introverted personality, so we'll sit in the front or we'll sit in the back and just go praise God. So glad, God, that you could meet us here and that you took the time. No, the worship experience, it wasn't meditative. They didn't sit in a corner all quiet. No, it was exuberant. They lifted up their voice. That's what we do when we come to church. We lift up our voice in praise. They, they, they sang in, in one accord. I don't know you, all you music geniuses out there, whether it was unison or three-part harmony. I don't know what it was, but they sang, they sang in one accord. They sang together. That's why we come in and we sing and we worship because we're welcoming in the presence and we want to see the glory of God. I'm building, I'm building, I'm building up here. I hope you feel the connection here. 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 13 and 14. 
The glory of God has not appeared at this point. The temple's built. The Ark of the Covenant's in there. They're singing. They're dancing. But the glory of God has not appeared yet. And it says, And it came even to pass, as the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and praised the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endureth forever, that then, that then, can I go back a little bit and say, they built the house. They built the temple according to His plan. They dedicated it with great sacrifice. And then they worshiped the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That then, and only then, did the glory of God fill the place with the cloud. And then Solomon prayed. And you can read the prayer in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, there is another wave of glory. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Previously we had a a cloud filled the temple, but now the fire came down from above and burnt the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord, another wave of glory. Praise God. What do you think it was like? Can you imagine what it was like? What, what it was like for all of them to just experience that and experience the glory of God in a tangible way that could be seen. Imagine. Imagine going back to the most extravagant thing that maybe you experienced and to see the fire fall and consume the sacrifice. But most of them were just worshipers. They weren't the high priests. They weren't priests. They weren't Levites. All they could see was from afar off the glory of God. There was only a select few that can experience and really only the high priests that can get into His presence. They were not welcome. Just like I probably didn't fit in that hotel, they weren't welcome. to see and to taste God's glory firsthand. As you know, that was a high point in the children of Israel. After that, Solomon, he, he fell off into sin. The kingdom was divided. Nebuchadnezzar in 587 B.C. came in, and you can read about it, and he basically destroyed the temple, burned it to the ground. And then we have 400 years of silence from the Old Testament. But like a silver lining on a dark cloud, there was a prophecy. And more than one, there were multiple prophecies. You can look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. He said, Behold, I will send my messenger before. I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way of the Lord. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Isaiah, he saw a day when the King of kings and the Lord of lords would make his first visitation to this earth in person. He saw something. God wanted to come. 
but the way was not prepared. God wants to come today. Have we prepared the way for him? There was a protocol for a king to come. To come into your village. To come into your town. A king with his entourage wouldn't just come riding into your village if the road was rocky and potholes. No, there had to be something done to welcome the king into your town. And what Isaiah saw in the spirit, he saw in the natural. It was easy for that connection during that time to understand what the spirit was telling him. He can look back on that and understand. Isaiah in our text, he says, the voice of him crying in the wilderness. He's prophesying about the ministry of John the Baptist who would be that forerunner. He would prepare the way of the Lord. Luke tells us that John was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He was the divine road paver. He would make straight the desert a highway for our God. He would make straight a place in the desert a highway for the glory of God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight. And the rough places plain. And then, and only then, will the glory of God be revealed. You see, the mission of John the Baptist was to prepare the hearts of the people so that there would be a highway for the Lord where He wouldn't have to deal with the high places and the low places and the crooked places and the rough places. Why? Because God does not dwell in unsanctified places. Period. He does not dwell in a temple that is not sanctified for His glory. The Old Testament, there was investment, there was sacrifice for His glory to appear. Can I get somewhat practical here? I know I've talked a lot and I've given some background, but maybe if I can sort of apply these principles in a practical sense, there are valleys in our life. There are a lot of valleys. There are low places of depression. It's real. There are low places of low living. There are low places of abuse. There are low places of mental uh, confusion. There are low places in our lives today and maybe some in this room today. But if you are to receive the glory of God, the gift of His holy presence into your life, if you're living in a low place and feel like you're not worthy, well, you need to repent and turn from that and just give it to God and say, God, lift me up. Lift me up with Your Spirit so that this valley could be made level. Mountains. Every mountain and hill made low. There's a lot of pride in our world today as well. There are high places of pride and arrogance. The Bible says God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. 
their self-righteousness. Just another form of unrighteousness. It's the sin of the Spirit. The Bible says, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God has to be pulled down. Maybe there are idols in your life. Thing that you, things that you worship more than the Almighty God. Then those idols must be dethroned for Him to be enthroned in your life. You can worship your career, your intellect, your education, your possessions, and maybe they begun to possess you. We as a Western society, America, we're blessed. Many people have great careers and they're on great trajectories. We've been blessed. But don't let those blessings possess you. Don't let those things become idols in your life. John came to make the crooked places straight. I think you know what that means. It means if you're crooked, get right with God. From the Hebrew, it means fraudulent, deceitful, polluted, all dishonesty, all crooked morals, all crooked thinking, all hidden sins. Rough places. Isaiah said that when John comes, he's actually going to make the rough places plain. It's a picture of an uneven and rocky road, bumpy and full of potholes. Ever been down a road like that? I'll give you a story. Time for story. Story break with Tim. Sorry. It's, it's, when I was growing up, we lived, like you know, lived overseas. And just to get to church, at one point it was a two and a half hour drive. Not because the distance was great, but because the road wasn't ideal. And so at one portion near the end when we were close to the church, um, it, it was just a mess. There are potholes as big as a car, it seemed like. And so you kind of just had to navigate your way around Mars to get to church. And so we had tire problems, vehicle, vehicle problems. God bless, but, you know, it's just tough to get there. But if you were to expect a president or a king to go down that road, you're going to pave it, you're going to smooth it out, you're going to smooth over those rough areas of your life. Unproachable haughtiness. The roughness of our spirit, it must be brought down into submission. We have a lot of hardness in our world. You know it. Macho toughness, a lack of openness to the power of Almighty God. But those rough places have got to be smoothed out. The Bible speaks at the end of time. Pastor read it in V Group in 2 Timothy 3, 1-5 through of how the world will wax worse and worse and, and, and recklessness and treachery and disobedient to parents, you name it. All kinds of stuff. But I'll tell you that if Jesus comes into my life, I've got to make room for Him. I've got to get those valleys taken care of those mountains and hills taken care of, those rough places and those crooked places taken care of. What's going on, you say? What's going on in Vertical Church in 2020 in January? Well, I'm praying that God will come, that His glory will come, that the Lord Almighty will show and manifest Himself in our church. Praise God. Praise God. And Isaiah said that John does his work. He preached repentance. He preached repentance. He says, 
you generation of vipers. He had a bold message. He had a hard message. I might have a slightly challenging message today. I hope you're okay with that. But John had a hard message. He didn't care what you thought. He was just going to deliver the truth. Sometimes you just need that. But it was a message of mercy. It was a message of mercy. He says, there's a king coming. Let's all stand. He said, there is a king coming. And I don't want him to stop at the door. There is a king coming. And I don't want him to stop at the door of our nation. I don't want him to stop at the door of your life, Janelle. I don't want him to stop at the door of your life, Barry. I don't want him to stop at the door of Vertical Church. I don't want him to stop, but I want there to be a way that's been paved. I want to pave a highway for the glory of God. I know that it's going to take work, that it's a process, but I want to see the glory of God. I want to see the presence of God fill this place. And I want to understand what it takes. It takes giving. It takes sacrifice. It takes investment. It takes dedication. It takes a renewal of the mind. It takes a change in every aspect of our life. But if I want the glory, then I want to pave that way. I want to pave a highway. Not some small little road, but I want to make that road as big as possible so that His glory can come into my life. Right now, I welcome you to the front. If you feel the urge that I do for the glory of God, I welcome you to the front today.